Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. In Scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God, and he saw Jesus standing next to his father, looking at him, which was confirmation that in this moment when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her. And that in an instant, from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, she was in the arms of Jesus. And and that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind. She wasn't alone. He was with her in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. Doxology Bible Church is proud to present EverStory, launching wherever you listen to podcasts on June 6th. EverStory is a weekly, seasonal podcast featuring Christ-centered stories of hope and transformation, told by people just like you. No chit-chat, just raw, powerful stories. Stories inspire us to connect with each other in real, tangible ways. With stories, we're able to glorify a God who relentlessly pursues us. Mark 16:15 tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Stories embody who we are as Christians. Without them, Paul's letters would have never been shared. Without stories, a person with Christ in their heart might never find the courage to bring the word to their neighbor. Without stories, the Great Commission never occurs. Check in with us often as we introduce stories about the way Jesus' radical love is moving in truly awesome ways. Find EverStory wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow Doxology Bible Church on Facebook or Instagram at Doxology Bible. Want to share your story or know someone who might? Send us an email to stories at doxology.church. Because everyone has a story. Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. Good morning, McKinney. Good to see you guys. I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, hey, it's good to have you this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, And if you've got a Bible with you, would you go ahead and grab it and open it? Join us in John chapter 20 this morning 
If you don't have a Bible, that's why we put these all around you. So uh, grab one of them, turn to page 756. That's where you'll find John chapter 20, which is where we are starting today as we're launching into a brand new series that you just saw we've called Restore. You know, the, uh, the words that a person says to us in the very last moments of their life are often the most profound, most memorable words they'll ever say to us. There's just something about that moment when a person is dying and they know that they're dying. And some of you have experienced this. They call everybody that they love around or the people that are nearest to them because they want to muster up enough strength to just say one last thing to you. Something that's a life lesson that's distilled down and they want to say it with all of the strength that they have remaining so that you remember it and take it with you. Or something that you, they want you to pass along to somebody that's not present, that they want to say something that they should have said that they didn't say, or something that they hadn't thought to say that now they need to say, or something they just want to say, but they can't say because the person that they want to say it to isn't there. And last words are, are really, really, really important and memorable and valuable. So in those moments when someone speaks those words at the last moments of their life, we tend to remember them. We write them down uh, so that we can pass them along because they're profound. And they're worth remembering uh, for us. And so we've got lots of examples of people all throughout history and their last words that were spoken. And some of them I, I just really love. Uh, one of my very favorites is Stonewall Jackson, his last words. Some of you are familiar with Stonewall Jackson, your Civil War buffs. Uh, he was a, a guy that was killed in battle in the Civil War. He was wounded actually mortally by friendly fire. And his last words, some of you, I can see you whispering them to your spouse. You know what they are. Because they're, they're beautiful. His last words were these. As he's being carried away from the battle to his death, he says, Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Isn't that beautiful? It's almost poetic. And to think of a person that's life is ebbing out of them in that moment to have the courage or the strength or the wherewithal to, to put together concepts and words and a thought like that, those guys that were carrying them thought, we got to remember this. we got to pass it along. It's profound. And so we remember it even 100, 200 years later. Other last words are remembered for other reasons. Um, Leonardo da Vinci some of you know what Leonardo, you remember the great painter and uh, inventor and, and genius? His last words were these, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Isn't that amazing? Leonardo da Vinci's last words. I'm kind of glad. Aren't you glad those were his last words? I don't know about you, but I always looked at the, the Mona Lisa and thought, God, I think, I think he kind of mailed it in. It's nice to know he saw it too. He just, I've offended God and mankind because I just mailed it in with all of my work. That was Leonardo da Vinci's. There's a, a surgeon. His name was Joseph Henry Green, uh, who was doing what surgeons do, I guess, when they are laying there dying. He was checking his own pulse and reporting on it for all of the people in the room. Uh, his last words stopped. Talking about his pulse. <laughs> Keep thinking about it. All right, my favorite, memorable last word, murderer. He was a murderer, James W. Rogers. He's put in front of a firing squad in Utah. And they asked him if he had any last words or last requests. His last words were, would someone please bring me a bulletproof vest? (laughs) Not so profound, but memorable, right? Last words are memorable. They're important. They're often profound, but we write them down. We take them with us because we know that those words are valuable. Last words are important. First words, also important. 
I mean, that's, that's where some of you are. You've got young babies, five months old, six month old, seven month old, or you remember that stage and you know that in those moments with your kids, you just sort of hover over them, listening to every babble and looking to everyone in the room saying, was that it? Did he say it? Because we want to write it down. We want to remember what's the first word. It's important. Was it dada? Was it mama? Or in the case of some of our friends, Fork. Which is problematic for two reasons. Uh, One, it's a weird first word. Whose kid says fork for their first word? But secondly, because for the longest time they couldn't figure out what he was saying, they thought he was saying something else because for young kids their R's aren't developed and they could not figure out why his first word was something they could not write in the baby book. (laughs) Later on they realized it was fork. And it's important to know first words. So, first words are important Last words are important. What about first words after last words? How important might those words be for us? A person gathers everybody around, says their last words, which are profound and memorable, and everyone pays attention and everyone writes it down and remembers those were the last words. He dies, and then he comes back to life. And he appears to you and speaks to you the very first words he says to you after his last words to you. How important might those words be to you? Well, in human history, we have one example. Unfortunately, the guys that were there to hear Jesus' first words to them wrote those words down. First words after last words. And that's what we find in John chapter 20, this passage that we're going to look at today. And as we get ready to look at it, let me just set the stage for you of what we find here in John chapter 20. Uh, It's Sunday evening, and, and somewhere, some room in Jerusalem are locked away Jesus' followers. It's not just the, the ones that we all know about. It. There's more than just them there, but at least them, these are guys, 10 of them are there, and they have followed Jesus every day for at least the last three or three and a half years. They've been present with Jesus. They followed him all the way up until three days ago when Jesus was arrested and tried, convicted, and crucified brutally on a cross. They didn't follow him there. In that moment, when that moment happened, they scattered like cockroaches. They ran. And now, in this moment, it's Sunday evening, and in a room somewhere in Jerusalem, they're all gathered together, locked up from the rest of the world, trying to figure out how the world went so bad, so fast. And what in the world people like them should do now? That's the situation for these guys. And it's not hard for us to imagine in this moment, knowing what we know about their story, how they're feeling in this moment locked away in the room. First thing that is just obvious is fear. As they gather in this room and they look at what's going on out there, they realize what these people did to Jesus. And it only stands to reason that if they did it to Jesus, they're going to come for his followers next. These guys are terrified out of their mind. But terror, fear, that's not the only thing that they're feeling in this moment. They've got to be feeling pretty guilty, too. These are guys who abandoned Jesus and abandoned each other over the last three days. For the last three and a half years, these guys, especially the ten, but some of the others have been inseparable. They're always together. But for the last three days, 
They're only mentioned separately. They abandon Jesus. They abandon each other. And here, locked away in the room, protected from what's happening out there, you have to imagine they're having a hard time even looking each other in the eye. So fear and guilt, but also disappointment. If you think about what these guys walked away from, they took all of their life chips and pushed them to the middle of the table. All of their family chips, they pushed to the middle of the table. Their career pushed to the middle of the table. Their comfort pushed to the middle of the table. They gambled everything on a man that they thought was about to overthrow Rome. And three days ago, Rome overthrew him. So they're disappointed and discouraged, thinking about all of the years they wasted following Jesus. And now, to add insult to injury, word has filtered back to them that the body is gone. It's forced reported to them by some women, but, you know, they had to have said among themselves, well, you know how women are in moments like these. That's why in our day, women aren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. They get kind of hysterical, and they can imagine things. So the women came to them and said, we saw an angel. The angel told us that Jesus is alive. And they said, yeah, well, we'll go check it out for ourselves. So a couple of the guys ran to the tomb. They show up at the tomb. Sure enough, the body's gone, but they didn't see an angel. And now they're all locked away in a room, hidden away from the outside, trying to figure out what to think, trying to figure out what to do. I can imagine how these guys are feeling. They're frustrated. They're terrified. They're defeated. They're guilty. They're confused. They're disillusioned. They're sad. And they're hopeless. They spent their whole life, as one of my seminary professors used to say, climbing the ladder of success. And now they're wondering, it was leaning against the wrong building the whole time. They're humiliated and scared and hiding in a closed up room, talking about everything that's wrong out there, trying not to think about what went wrong in here, trying to figure out what people like them should do. In a world like this, during times like these, that's where we pick up the story. Look at what we find, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I love how this is written. It, it doesn't say Jesus came and knocked on the door and they opened and let him in. It doesn't say he used the door at all. It just says in this moment, they're in there cowering in fear of the Jewish leaders and Jesus came and stood among them. And he says, peace be with you. Which is a pretty common way to say hello to somebody. Even today, if you go to Israel, some of you have been to Israel. Uh, some of you need to go to Israel some point, someday, and see it. But what you see when you go is everywhere you go, people will say hey to you. When they say hey to you, they'll use the, the Hebrew word shalom. It literally means peace. But what they use it for is a greeting. And that's what Jesus is doing. He shows up here in this moment. He says, hey guys. Which doesn't do a whole lot for their fear in this moment. Luke tells us when he records this same story, he says they were terrified because they thought Jesus was a ghost. Look what happens, verse 20. After he said this, hey guys, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. 
the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So they think it's a ghost, but Jesus makes it really clear that he's not. He shows them his hands, he shows them his side, and they begin to realize these aren't mortal wounds on a dying person anymore. These are scars of a person who's been victorious over death. And in this verse, two things happen. Two kind of word studies that you got to be aware of to know what happens in this moment. The first thing that happened in this moment is they got it. It says in the, in the verse, they saw the Lord, which is a word that doesn't just mean that they laid their eyes on him. When they laid their eyes on him, they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. This is a different word from just... They happened to see him. He crossed across their view. This is a word that means they got it. It clicked in that moment. They realized that the person that they banked their life on was stronger than death. He was alive. He defeated the grave. And he was standing there with them in the room. And it clicked. They got it. And something happened when they got it. That's the second thing you got to understand. It says when they saw him, when it clicked... They were overjoyed, which is a different word from just them saying, huh, that's pretty awesome. This word overjoyed, some of you that are TCU fans, you remember a few years ago when TCU was in the, in the Rose Bowl and they won the Rose Bowl in the last seconds by stopping a two-point conversion? That thing that you felt, that's this word. Some of you that aren't Frog fans, but you're Rangers fans, when Nelly Cruz hits a grand slam in the 11th inning to win an, in a playoff game, that's the feeling. This is the feeling. Overjoyed. I read one guy talking about this word and how to translate it in this passage. He said, in this place, they saw the Lord, they got it, and they rejoiced like lunatics. Some of you know what that looks like. You've experienced it. You know that feeling. When they got it, that's how these guys responded. I don't know about you, but that sort of puts in check my Easter worship. How easy is it for us to show up on an Easter Sunday and to walk away and go, well, that was pretty cool. I mean, to see the words, he is risen, and walk away going, I don't know how they did it with the paintbrush thing. That was awesome. That was cool. Where's lunch? kind of makes me wonder sometimes if I get it, if it's clicking, that the one that I've banked my life on is stronger than life's greatest enemy. When they got it, they rejoiced like lunatics. They didn't get over it. Well, not really. Maybe before anything else this morning, before you take away anything else, maybe this morning would be a chance for you to look at that passage and say, Jesus, I've followed you for a while now, but I'm sort of wondering if it's clicking anymore. This is so easy for me to come in here and worship and sing and what can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus, and go, eh, okay, well, that was good, that's cool. I like the music, I didn't like the music to walk away from a risen Savior without it ever clicking to the point that we're overjoyed with what we've heard and the message that we've seen. But then there's this clue in the passage that maybe after the overjoyed, 
some other emotions started to creep into the room. Those emotions aren't hard for us to imagine either, are they? I mean, here's the Jesus who they have just abandoned in his moment of greatest need, alive and standing in front of them. Not a single one of them stood up at his trial as a character witness. In fact, at least one of them, and it could have been more, gets totally psyched out by a little slave girl who says, I think you've been with that guy. He called down curses from heaven. Said, I swear to God, I don't know him. Now he's standing in front of them. And they know that he knows where they've been over the last few hours. Now what emotions are they feeling? Shame. Guilt. A different kind of fear. Regret. Some of the same feelings that some of us feel in a moment like this, in a room like this when we realize that the risen Savior could see us. He knows where we've been and what we've done. Those feelings are starting to settle in on these guys. The questions are starting to creep into their minds. What have we done? What's he going to do to us? How do we know that's what they're starting to feel? Well, because of what Jesus says. Look at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. He says it again. Kind of a weird example. This would be a little bit like if you sneeze and somebody next to you says, God bless you. You look over and like, thank you. And then they look at you again and say it again. God bless you you. What are they saying in that moment? They're saying, no, 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 it's not just a reflex. I'm not just being polite. I'm not just saying what you say in a moment like this when people tend to say those words. I mean the actual, literal words that I'm saying to you in this moment. And I want you to pay attention to them. Jesus says to these guys, I'm not just saying, hey, I'm not just responding to the moment. I'm not just saying hello. This wasn't just the, the more polite equivalent of surprise. He's saying, no, 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 I want you to pay attention to the words that I'm saying, guys. And so we should. He says, peace be with you. What's he doing? He's reminding them of who he is and why he came. See, a lot of times when we think about the word peace, we think about war. We think about battles. We say, we hope there's peace in the Middle East. What we really mean is we kind of hope they stop lobbing bombs back and forth at each other. Then there will be peace when the conflict goes away. When the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about a word that's a whole lot bigger than that, a whole lot deeper than that. It's the Hebrew word shalom. When, when we think about the word shalom, we think about the word peace, we think about war. When Jesus thinks about the word peace, and when he says the word peace, he's thinking about restoration. 
See, going all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, going back to the very first pages of Scripture, the word shalom refers to the way that things were supposed to be. The way that things were originally intended to be. When the whole world flourishes the way it was designed to flourish. When the relationship between God and people and God of all and, and all of creation and the relationships between people are whole rather than broken. Listen to how one writer talks about shalom when he writes about this word. He says this word shalom would include, for instance, strong marriages, secure children. That's how things were at the very beginning. Nations and races would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, and complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. Then with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they tell the truth. Freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions and performances. Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople, would seek to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate, encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call out to each other about them. Doesn't that sound like the kind of world you could get used to living in? Doesn't that kind of sound like a world that's a whole lot different from this world? It's all bound up in one word. And yet when we look at our world and we look at the broken places in our world and the places that flourishing doesn't flourish and wholeness is broken in our world, a lot of times we think that it's new, that it hasn't always been that way, at least in in humanity in recent years. And we feel like it's worse than it's ever been. That's not necessarily the case. I mean, Jesus came to a world that killed God. So that's kind of bad. And yet he came to that world to restore it like you would a a beautiful, valuable masterpiece. And that's what he's telling us here. He, he, He comes to restore it delicately, personally, meticulously. He doesn't come and just hose down the world to clean it all off. In every, isn't that what you see when you look at Jesus? When you look at his life? You look what he did? When you look at the stories about Jesus in every single story, that's what he's about, restoring people and places bit by bit, person by person. For people who are sick, Jesus came for them to restore them. For people who are hopeless, Jesus came for them. For people who are addicted, people who are ashamed, people who are defeated, 
People who are outcasts and losers and dead. Jesus has been on a mission from the day his ministry was conceived between he and the Father to delicately, deliberately, and patiently restore wholeness and flourishing to a world and to people that he believes are worth saving. When Jesus shows up in that room, he speaks his very first words to these guys who have to be feeling about as far away from shalom as a person can possibly feel. Jesus says, I still have a purpose for a broken down world. And it starts with broken down people just like you. Yeah, I know where you've been over the last 52 hours. Yeah, I know what you've done. Yeah, I know that you're guilty. I know you betrayed me. I know that you've let me down even in gigantic ways. But the offer of peace, the offer of shalom, the offer of unbroken relationship between you and God, the offer of unbroken relationship between you and the people around you, it still applies to people like you. Peace be with you. But look at the second half of his first words after his last words. The message gets even better. You have to imagine at this point these guys have billions of questions. Peter desperately wants to say something in this moment, like he says something at every other moment. This is a perfect moment for Jesus to give them a sermon. Perfect moment for Jesus to give them a theology lesson, to unpack all of the things that they're going to need to understand this in their life. It's the perfect time for Jesus to take a little Q&A. Where were you? How'd you do the stone thing? What about the angels and the earthquake? Was that you or was that the Father? I mean, how did that all work together? And why did we miss it? Why didn't we see it? Can we talk about this? What about the shroud, Jesus? I mean, that's going to mess people up someday. Nothing else, this is a really good opportunity for Jesus to give these guys a strategy for getting out of this room without him getting crucified a second time and them getting crucified the first time. But he's not done with his first words after last words. He says, guys, peace be with you. And then keep reading. Verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. <laughs> Jesus appears to these guys. He says, not only do I have a plan to restore wholeness and flourishing to the world, not only do I have a plan to restore wholeness and flourishing and shalom with you and in you, I have a plan to restore flourishing and wholeness around you. <laughs> and guys, through you, 
I want people just like you. Yes, I know where you've been. Yes, I know what you've done. Yes, I know how guilty you are. Yes, I know your regrets. Yes, I know your shame. Just like you. To be a part of my plan for delicately, permanently, meticulously restoring my creation and the people that I love who are valuable enough to not be discarded and disregarded and thrown away. They're valuable enough to restore. I got a plan for you guys, Jesus says. I got a purpose that's being restored to you in this moment. And guys, by the way, my plan for you is not for you to spend the rest of our journey together locked away in a room where it's safe. Talking about how bad the world is and how fast it got there and wondering what people like us should do in a place like this in times like these. My purpose for you is not just for you to stay in a place that's comfortable. Guys, I want you to go like I went. And remember, remember my story. I left safe to come to a world that would kill me. And I knew it. So that I could go to a world that's broken and begin to put peace together. That's how I came. That's how the Father sent me. Guys, don't forget, I left perfect fellowship with two other persons who were just like me so that I could come to a world filled with fractured relationships and hostile people so that I could put an end to the hostility and break down the dividing wall between people and people groups who are nothing like me, who don't deserve me to go to them, who will certainly take advantage of me in the process. That's how the Father sent me. Remember the stories? I put aside comfort, guys, so that I could step into poverty, so that I could step into hopelessness, so that I could walk into despair, into a world that's marred by a lack of shalom so that I could bring it back to the way it was supposed to be. I chose not to be detached. I chose not to be distant. I chose not to be secluded. I chose not to write off the world. Instead, I moved into the neighborhood and I got my hands dirty. And I lived in a world full of people like you who weren't like me. I chose to get personally involved in the work of meticulously, personally, permanently restoring the world to the way it's supposed to be. And in the exact same way as the Father sent me, followers of Jesus... I'm sending you. Then he goes on to answer two of their biggest objections. The two big thoughts that came into their head, and they were objecting to this restored purpose. How do I know they were their two biggest objections? Because there are two biggest objections. When we start thinking about living into a purpose like that that comes from from Jesus, uh, before we're willing to leave the safe room, decide to be a part of what Jesus so clearly calls followers to be a part of, you know what those two questions are? They're the questions that come to you and me. How could I do that? And what would I say? Isn't that our biggest questions? 
How could somebody like me be a part of something like that? And what on earth would I say? (laughs) Isn't that why for a bunch of us, our following Jesus never moves beyond the safe room with people like us? The comfortable place with other Christ followers talking about how bad things are out there, how fast it got that way, and what people like us ought to do places like that during times like these. Isn't isn't that why we always talk about other people going? Other people getting involved, what they ought to do, what they ought to vote, where they ought to go, where they ought to serve, what they ought to solve, because we don't know what we would do or what we would say if we were a part of restored purpose like that. Look at what Jesus says, verse 22, with that. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, can we stop right there and just admit something? This is weird. Is that weird? Can you imagine this moment? I mean, I don't know about you, but um, Jesus says to them, As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. For me, this ranks somewhere on the gross spectrum with him spitting in the mud and rubbing it on a guy's face. Like, I don't love to be breathed on. What in the world's going on here? Well, it's a little harder to understand when you realize what's going through these guys' head in the moment that Jesus doubles down on shalom. He takes them back to something that they were well informed about, a place on the creation where shalom existed. You remember what it was? The Garden of Eden, where God looks at mankind and the relationship he has with them. Where he looks at mankind and sees the relationship they have with each other. Where he looks at creation and it's all flourishing just the way he created it. He says it's very good. You remember what happened there? He breathed into man the breath of life. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's saying, I'm giving you life. I'm giving you literally wind in your sails. And this is symbolic, but 50 days from now, guys, you're going to be in a place, you're going to be in a room not unlike this room where the Holy Spirit, God himself, is going to come indwell you and fill you and empower you to go do what I'm asking you to do like a mighty rushing wind. He's going to literally be wind in your sails. So you're asking the question, fellas, how would I do this? Here's the answer. You're not. But I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you strength. I'm going to be the wind in your sails. I'm going to do the restoration. You're going to be my tools. Okay, yeah, but what do I got to say? I mean, um, that's what he tells us in verse 23. What do I say? Look what he says, verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. Literally, they have already been forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they have already not been forgiven. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, God, as a Christ follower, you get to declare the message about how a person can have their sins forgiven. How the brokenness that exists between them and God can be totally bridged by God himself. You get to announce it. You get to declare it. You get to carry that message. And you and I go, I can't talk about that message. 
Like people will think I'm weird. I'm not qualified. I'm not trained. I don't have relationships like that. I don't have a degree. I don't have a position. I don't work at a church. I don't talk about that stuff for a living. I would be weird and arrogant and condescending and they'll look at me like I'm strange. They will never listen to me. I will push all of my relational chips to the middle of the table and I'll walk away from them. And Jesus says, you are a perfect candidate to communicate this message because you will not go arrogantly. Remember, you're a broken down person, guilty, ashamed, and terrified. Who better to carry that message to the rest of the world than somebody like you? You're not going to go arrogantly. You're not going to go angrily. How are you going to go? You're going to go overjoyed because you get it. And somebody out there needs to hear what's happened to you. Somebody out there needs to hear about what you've seen and what you've experienced and what you get. And who better to talk about that than somebody like you? to carry the message because you'll walk into a place like that and simply, delicately meet physical and spiritual needs of people around you and humbly with a servant-hearted posture announce, I think I found someone who can help. Jesus' first words after his last words are for every single Christ follower. If you've seen me, Jesus says, not intellectually, not religiously, not philosophically, not physically, not theoretically, if you've seen who I am and it clicked with you, if you've seen me, you're sent, all of you. You don't have to wait for all the answers. You don't have to wait for the degree. You don't have to wait for the position. If you've seen me, You're sent on a purpose that comes from me. With every corner, in every place in the world, delicately, meticulously, personally participating in my mission as my tools. Jesus says, guys, I'm wiping out suffering and injustice and disease and death and oppression and heartache and brokenness in all the places you live. And if you're a Christ follower, I want so much more for you than for you to spend the rest of our journey together holed up in a room full of people that look just like you. I've got a purpose for your life. Yes, I know you're guilty. Yes, I know you're unequipped. Yes, I know you've got questions. Yes, I know where you've been. Yes, I know what you've done. Yes, I know what you've done in the last 24 hours and you are not worthless to me. You've got a purpose to be a part of what I'm doing with every molecule of creation. You can be a part of it. Trust me. So what would that look like? That's how we're going to invest the next three weeks together. Next week, we're going to talk about how Jesus can use you to bring hope in hopeless situations all around you. We're going to look at a passage that Jesus actually quotes early on in his ministry. It was hundreds of years old at that time, and he says, this is my mission statement. This is why I've come. This scripture is fulfilled. In your hearing it, this is what I'm doing. 
And what we're going to find is there are several different ways that we can be agents of hope in hopeless places. And yet something else is coming alongside of that this week that I want to make sure is on your radar because most of us, when we think about hopeless, we haven't ever really experienced hopelessness. We've experienced some degree of hopelessness, but there is a degree of hopelessness that exists in other places in the world where people don't have relationships that they can go to to help them out of hopeless situations where they don't have uh, financial resources or economic resources or church resources or society resources or government resources to help them get out of a hopeless situation. Most of us have never experienced that. We would have to get on a plane and and fly to another part of the world to walk in a place like that around people uh, who who are experiencing that every single day. That's the story of their life. And so this week, starting on Friday, uh, Compassion International is going to be here with what they call their mobile experience. What they'll do is take two semi-trailers and back them end-to-end in our parking lot, and they'll allow you to walk through what's built out with actual artifacts, actual things from a person's actual house and an actual place, and let you hear their story about how they lived in the village where they lived. They'll let you walk through that experience and experience it for yourself. This Friday through Monday, you'll have the opportunity to do that. I got to tell you, it's an incredible, incredible experience. It's great for you with your kids. If you want to walk your kids through something and show them how life is lived on another part of the world, or if you just want to see it for yourself so that you can experience what it's like to be in a culture or a place where hope seems so far away for you. There's no obligation for walking through that, but you do need to sign up for it if you can possibly sign up for it sometime Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, uh, so that because there are thousands of people already signed up to go through it. It's happening right out of here, but we want to make sure you've got the opportunity to go through it. So if you haven't already signed up, when you go out of here today and turn to the left, Chris Lip will be out there at a table to, uh, to show you how you can sign up for it to give you a time slot. Or you can also do that online if you want to do that um, as well, but he'll give you all of that information this morning. I want you to be able to be a part of that. And then next Sunday, part of what we're going to talk about are some really, really simple ways uh, that every single one of us could take a relatively small step towards bringing hope to a person that lacks it in their current situation. We're going to do that next week. After that, we're going to talk a little closer to home, Jesus' specific heart for the city. And the last week, we're going to talk about how Jesus has a plan for every single molecule of the globe to reflect who he is and what he's done. Now, you can be a part of it and reflect it wherever you are. Jesus is on a mission to restore shalom, wholeness, and flourishing to every corner of our world. And he invites people who know him to be his tools in doing it everywhere we place our feet, restoring the world around us while he's in the process of restoring the world within us. Will you pray with me? Father, in this moment, I pray for the person that's here this morning that's never realized that they could have peace with you. That in this moment, they would realize Jesus died on a cross, that he took on their sin. He became sin who knew no sin. So that as he was buried and the sin was put in the grave, when he walked out of the grave, his first words to them would not be about their sin or their guilt or their shame. It would be about peace that's possible for them through him. And I pray that in this moment, that would click for them, that they would trust in Jesus and they would let somebody know so that somebody could walk with them in seeing what that life can be all about, walking in unbroken fellowship with a God who loves them and with people who are different from them and just like them. Lord, for all, a bunch of us that have followed Jesus for a while, I, my prayer this morning is that this morning would be a morning where we get it, 
that we would ask you, Lord, to open our eyes so that we do more than just allow you to pass before our eyes, that it's not just a religious moment while we're here. It's not just something theoretical. It's not just something physical. But, Lord, that we would see you, that we would get it today, and that we would rejoice like lunatics, that that would fuel our life, and that we would live on purpose, not because we're guilty, not because we're ashamed, not because we're religious, not because we have to, but because we are so overjoyed we've gotten it. And would you use us, Lord, as individuals and as a church to leave the confines of the safe room today and to go into a world that's broken, delicately, personally, permanently, meticulously restoring peace in our corner of the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church.